welcome to Context Clues, also known as your homework to get ready for next week's brand new episode called Haunted House Attractions. Each of these Context Clue re-releases will hopefully help us fit our newest topic into the enormous tapestry of American history, maybe even encouraging new connections and ideas. Talking to the Dead, our season two premiere, was very fun and enlightening to make, considering my own lifelong experiences with the paranormal mystery and considering the incredible political relevance of the spiritualist movement that surprised me greatly. As you'll hear, spiritualism was an extremely widespread fad, full of contraptions and techniques that tried to reach out to the other side, with showmen and women at the helm and a myriad of clever hoaxes that the more secular masses ate right up. The movement featured most prominently beautiful staged seances, where sitters might circle around a table in a living room holding hands, asking out into the great unknown for a ghostly connection. The lights start to flash, objects begin to float on their own, the table lifts off the ground, a white hand reaches out and touches you from the dark. Just like seances, we as participants in haunted house attractions suspend our disbelief and we become part of the show ourselves, except without that touching part that we're no longer allowed to do in our modern haunted houses. Well, not all of them. More on that next week. We're diving into one of my favorite things in the world. We'll learn about the raucous history of early Halloween and the haunted houses that would corral the baddest boys into decorated neighborhood basements. We'll learn about the original charity haunts that first owned the scenes, and even the evangelical hell houses and extreme haunted houses that have caused major controversy and do so to this day. We want to try to figure out why some of us love to be scared and others avoid it at all costs. The answers may not lie just in our twisted psychology, but perhaps somewhere far deeper than that. Our attraction to the macabre imprinted in our unique DNA, formed over hundreds of millions of years. We will wonder next week if the ghost is actually inside us all. We'll ask, what if we are the haunted ones? Now here it is. Please enjoy our episode, Talking to the Dead. Hope you're having a great Halloween season. On this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I am now going into a trance. 
my trance is wearing off. I think you better hang up now. Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Lift the table, move it around on it. In the name of humanity and love, if there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. You're moving it. No, I'm not. You're moving it. Would you just quiet? I'm trying to concentrate here. And I'm not moving it. You're moving it. I'll start this season with a confession that might ruin any skeptic's credibility that you've generously bestowed on me. Myself, my mother, and my granny have always been prone to witnessing the supernatural, and I have to admit, I kind of do believe in ghosts. My childhood and teendom were dotted with unexplained events and what seemed like weird communications, and I felt uniquely connected to this spirit world, sometimes more so than the material one. At 16 years old, I was assigned the most obligatory of high school projects, the job shadow, and mine centered around a trip to a cemetery with a team of paranormal investigators from the city. I bought myself a Ouija board, one that sat on the floor of my room with its heart-shaped planchette poised for message delivery. Like so many before me, I hoped for a message, for guidance that might come through, a message from that brilliant truth of the beyond, some help and consolation for a strange and struggling teen. Our connection to this particular kind of American afterlife has a rich history, one rooted in the awe-inspiring gasp of the age of invention when suddenly the light bulb illuminated the darkness, the telegraph connected people hundreds of miles away, and the phonograph recorded real human voices, and for the first time, loved ones could actually be heard after they passed on. Back before modern technology as we know it, when someone died, they died without leaving a trace, at most a lock of hair or a letter. But a massive social movement that began in the 1840s called spiritualism truly changed America's relationship to the dead, and it suddenly became socially acceptable for those with special psychic gifts to translate the communications of the spirit world. All throughout history, all cultures have dreamed of contact, of messages of love or hope from the people that we've lost. And this very human desire was a big part of spiritualism, sure. But as these events called seances grew in popularity, they also morphed into a kind of wild parlor entertainment that was known to get super scary, super gross, super sexy, and surprisingly political. Now, I do know that it's likely that spirits and ghosts are simply projections of our subconscious, as most psychologists and scientists now believe. But not only did reputable scientists like Edison and Tesla have a deep interest in this new form of religion, but spiritualism also acted as a liberal platform to aid in the abolition of slavery and the advancement of women's rights, actually delivering encouragements toward equality from beyond the grave. For this episode, we'll go deep into this bizarre 80-year trend of popular culture that doubled as a progressive social movement, one as complicated, as intersectional, and problematic as the progressive movements we see today. This ghostly movement began appropriately enough with two teenage girls in a dark bedroom seeing what strangeness they might be able to conjure. The very first message tapped across the telegraph was sent in 1844 and said, simply, What hath God wrought? And both anxieties and excitement were present around this new invention, this wonder of communicating instantly with people who were not actually there. 
Think about how huge this must have been, how magical, how suspicious and otherworldly this new potential was, the potential to connect with those all over the country instantly, when before you could only send a letter and cross your fingers that it would actually be received days or weeks later. It seemed to encourage Americans to wonder about other previous limitations, limitations of space and time, and whether new technology might be able to link us not just to those far away, but even to those who had passed on to another realm. In fact, the very first spirits that spoke through mediums did so just a handful of years after the telegraph changed American consciousness forever, in raps and taps, their very own haunted Morse code. The movement of spiritualism began very much like the half-baked seances I forcefully directed at each and every slumber party to the abject horror of the more traditional tweens. It was in the year 1848, the month of March, that the Fox family in Hydesville, New York, claimed to be plagued by a smattering of cracks and raps, pounds and knocks, of unexplained noises clamoring through their house that seemed to be connected to their daughters, Maggie, 14, and Kate, 11. The escalating experiences led their parents, Margaret and John, to call their neighbors over, and they all spoke from the flickering darkness, asking questions into the ether. And for once, it didn't seem like the devil was trying to possess the innocent family. It was that something, or rather someone, was communicating from beyond the grave. In line with the growing entrepreneurial spirit of America, the family began to charge a dollar per person for the curious to attend a Fox Sisters seance for themselves. As the months wore on, the dead ghosts that showed up to chat became more and more impressive. Even Benjamin Franklin came tapping through to tell listeners that the Fox sisters were the real deal. But skeptics couldn't help notice that the brilliant man's grammar and word choice suddenly had the distinctive qualities of a teenage girl. Their show was popular enough that soon the girls went on tour, even across the ocean to London. Eventually, Maggie and Kate did admit that they had learned to crack their toes and other joints on command and had figured out that doing so while holding them against wooden surfaces created a kind of reverberation that mimicked a sound coming seemingly from everywhere and nowhere. Not only that, but they originally created the louder thuds just to mess with their hyper-religious mother who was scared of demons, tying apples to strings and bouncing them off the stairs. But this small example was just the beginning of an elaborate new form of magic that masqueraded as reality, as science, as proof of the afterlife. In just a few short months, the movement exploded with more and more mediums. Please manifest yourself by speaking to the trumpet. Lift it. Lift it. Speak to it. Speak. Speak, Harry. We are watching and waiting, Harry. Interestingly enough, as exorcisty as this all sounds, at the time, spiritualism was not generally seen as incompatible with Christianity, and the mediums were usually Christians themselves. As the movement evolved, mediums went from simply delivering messages to a kind of full-on physical possession, acting out the spirits' voices and mannerisms. 
1851, there were over a hundred shows of this kind in New York alone, and mediums from all over the nation set up their own intimate seances full of sophisticated parlor tricks like tipping and levitating tables, levitating instruments that played themselves, hurling objects across the room, conjuring glowing ghost figures that actually whispered and touched the sitters, with a rolling cast of both dead loved ones and dead famous people channeled through the medium. All of this was done in the dark, and oftentimes the planned-out tricks of these spiritual grifters were the least entertaining part. The sitters would imagine much stranger things in the shadows than any tricks the mediums could come up with themselves. But there was another, more political side to these nationally spreading magical displays. Radical Quakers Amy and Isaac Post were among the first to meet with and then publicly support the Fox sisters. A vast majority of the mediums popping up in America were women, who were seen as weak enough, as sensitive enough, and empathetic enough to access the voices of the dead. In fact, many spiritualists began with strong connections to the progressive Christian Quaker communities and became involved in causes like the abolition of slavery and women's voting rights. With this new religion, no longer was one forced to consult a priest or pastor to access the beyond, and the divine messages coming through were actually preaching for the rights of women and minorities, something that mainstream Christianity certainly was not doing. The spiritualists' afterlife, their version of this place between here and heaven, was a kind of rolling green utopia of equal rights, a place that offered something new in a time when the only voices and opinions that were allowed were those of white men. While attending seances and other displays of spiritualism, it was the first time that many people had heard a woman give a public speech. It certainly helped that they were channeling mainly the spirits of dead men, giving their calls for equality a legitimacy that they never had when they were just women speaking for themselves. It's hard to say even now how much the spiritualists believed in their own powers and how much they saw it as an opportunity to take some power back. Unsurprisingly, the scientists who were testing the phenomenon, who were all men, were sometimes known to bypass conversations with the women mediums in order to speak with the spirits of the men they were conjuring, often gossiping together about the woman herself. As the bloody Civil War claimed some 620,000 lives, the emotional need for closure only reinforced the popularity of those who claimed to be able to pass messages from their dead loved ones. Not long after the war ended, celebrity inventor Thomas Edison would dazzle America with another potentially paranormal invention, the phonograph. Much of the public was uneasy and some straight up aghast at this new invention that they believed represented a kind of immortality, the voices of the dead playing forever even after they were gone. Not only that, but Alexander Graham Bell would update the telegraph into the telephone, and now disembodied voices were crackling all over the nation, lending credence to those that were being channeled by an increasing number of mediums. Scientists were eager to be involved in this new religion, one they felt held more value because it could potentially be proven with scientific tests, whereas they felt that the miracles described in the Bible could not. Because Edison believed that life itself was indestructible, spiritualism appealed to him, and he even went as far as to mention his designs for a spirit phone machine that could be used to contact the dead. By the early 1900s, inventor Nikola Tesla was also experimenting with communicating through the dead with what he called a spirit phone, saying, quote, My first observations positively terrified me. It would have sounded a little like this recent recreation by YouTuber Mr. Fixit Rick.
I can definitely see why it terrified him. Also introduced around the same time were the wonders of photography, of actual images of the dead that lived on. As spiritual entertainers competed for who could produce the most impressive examples of the technological paranormal and who could produce, essentially, marketable haunted goods, spirit photography used the brand new process of double exposure to create a ghost-like impression of the deceased, shown see-through and standing beside their loved one. It was often achieved by breaking into the homes of those that had ordered spirit portraits to obtain photos to create the illusion. Even Mary Lincoln Todd subscribed to this process and was given a portrait of herself with a ghostly Abraham Lincoln standing behind her. By the liberated 1920s, these seances were getting pretty risque, and it was highly desired by attendees to be touched by the spirits, with one sitter remarking, Wishing to feel once more those singular touches of fingers, which were certainly neither mine nor the medium's. Again, those mysterious touches thrilled through my soul. Spirits, or rather mediums disguised as spirits, would beckon men toward a black curtain where their ghostly arms would pull at their shirts, take them into an embrace, and kiss them long and passionately. And then the same spirit would call forth a young woman, and the same thing would happen again. Men and women were encouraged by the spirits to leave their spouses and engage their true spiritual lovers, often those present at the seance. Mediums were even known to have what appeared to be orgasms while under trance in front of all of the sitters. Scholars now see that those attending these events used it as an excuse for kind of no-holds-barred sexuality for a culture that was exiting a serious Victorian prudishness and barreling straight into the first major sexual revolution of the Jazz Age. It's not really surprising that these events became some of the most popular of the time. The most famous of this particular flair of seance was a woman named Mina Crandon, a Boston medium described as too attractive for her own good, who threw the sexiest and grossest seances around, and who was locked in a years-long battle with none other than the world-famous magician Harry Houdini, who would die while trying to expose her as a fraud. Mina Crandon was in her mid-30s, blonde and blue-eyed, with the hip-short flapper haircut of the time, who would go on to be known as Marjorie to her hundreds of thousands of fans and the blonde witch of Lime Street to her haters. She was known to wear only a sheer kimono during her seances, her breasts dusted with a phosphorescent powder. Her husband loved to display naked photos of her pre-seance to help persuade critics to believe in her powers. She would then be strip-searched and even had cavity searches performed to prove that she was not hiding anything. Marjorie was well known for the grossest of all the spiritualist tricks, something called ectoplasm, a kind of mysterious goo that would ooze from different orifices, and I do mean all orifices, of the mediums, described as an essence left behind by the deceased, sometimes pooling out to create the face of the dead. You should look at these pictures, they're very creepy. In reality, mediums were regurgitating things like cheesecloth, muslin, and even the entrails and organs of different farm animals. Marjorie's specific brand of ectoplasm was an apparent ghost hand that would appear from her navel and also from under her dress and then wave about frantically in the darkness, later proven to be the organ of a pig. She said it was the ghost hand of her dead brother, Walter, who became the star of her seances, doing anything from tipping the tables to playing the trumpet in the dark, often grumpily quoting scripture through Marjorie in an angry, gravelly voice. 
World-famous magician Harry Houdini, however, was not one to be distracted by Marjorie's charms, nor her conjured brother Walter, who just happened to have quite a lot of anti-Semitic things to say to the Jewish Houdini. Houdini was not only in the height of his career in the 1920s, but he was on a mission, one of debunking the lot of huckster spiritualists once and for all, who he saw as magicians who were lying to the public about something as delicate as death. He didn't want grieving people to be taken advantage of. At the same time, the journal Scientific American was offering a $2,500 prize to any spiritualist who could demonstrate to their investigative committee a bona fide visual psychic manifestation. And there were several on the committee ready to hand over the money to Marjorie. She was either just that real or just that good. But Houdini wouldn't have it. He had an axe to grind. He canceled his slate of shows to travel to Boston to sit at a world-famous Lime Street seance. To this day, people are split on just what happened at the seance where Marjorie sought to prove her authenticity and Houdini sought to expose her tricks. It seems that most believe that Houdini was able to expose Marjorie, but others say he cheated, rigging some of the tests against her. We do know that a very angry Walter threw a phonograph at Houdini in the darkness as he roared, Houdini, you goddamn son of a bitch! I put a curse on you now that will follow you every day for the rest of your short life. Houdini will be gone by Halloween. In fact, Houdini just barely missed Walter's predicted death day. He was accidentally killed when punched in the stomach, a feat he often performed while he boasted of his steel abs. This punch, however, may have led to his appendix rupturing, with the infection killing him on Halloween night, 1926. Years later, on her own deathbed, Marjorie was asked once more to admit how she had done all of her tricks. With a bitter laugh, she scratched out, Why don't you guess? You'll all be guessing for the rest of your lives. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I shall now contact Tilly. Ethel to Tilly. Ethel to Tilly. Over. Jay, is that you? Yes, it's me, Tilly. Tilly, that's sneeze. Are you sick? Sick? I'm dead. <laughs> Over the next 50 years, thanks in large part to the efforts of Houdini, parlor room seances slowly died out, with many famous mediums ending up penniless and dying of alcohol abuse, admitting they were frauds and then taking it back, losing credibility and creating greater and greater public disdain. Even though mediums were out, the desire to talk to the dead and the belief that it was possible certainly didn't go away and continued to be acceptable, family-friendly, and lucrative entertainment. Originally called a talking board by the spiritualists, the patented version known as the Ouija board grew in popularity and allowed everyone to be their own spiritual medium after a quick trip to the local department store. The sale of the Ouija board boomed, even beating out Monopoly in 1967 with 20 million sold, right by no coincidence, at the height of the Vietnam War. By the time the 70s hit and horror movies exploded in popularity, it was The Exorcist and movies like it that turned Ouija boards into demonic portals leading to probable satanic ritual abuse, which you can hear more about on our two-part series on Satanic Panic from Season 1. In honor, here's our old friend, Mr. Pat Robertson, on the Ouija board. It goes around to letters and spells out words, and so you feel like some dead person. But actually, it is communicating with demonic spirits. It is a dangerous thing, and I strongly urge people not to get involved in it. Even though their extreme popularity died out, mediums certainly still exist and still command our attention, our money, and our TV rating numbers. Pop medium John Edward, who you may remember from his early 2000s show Crossing Over, received apparent transmissions from the dead that he passed on live to their family members present in the audience. Some of you may remember when Crossing Over was parodied mercilessly by South Park, who called out the pretty obvious tactic of cold reading, a process by which mediums pay attention to the emotional cues of whoever they're speaking with and bend their answers to the responses of the bereaved. Okay, I'm going to pretend that a dead person is talking to me about you, okay? Okay. Okay, watch, Kyle. It's an older man, someone very close to you. My father? Does this month, November, hold a special significance? (gasps) My birthday's in November! Right, because he's saying, tell her happy birthday. Oh, my God! See, Kyle, I just started with something really vague. I chose older man because I'm betting that based on this woman's age, her father is most likely dead. But if her father wasn't dead, I could still say it was some other older man. But how'd you know her birthday was in November? I didn't. I just asked her if November meant anything. Her father could have died in November, or Thanksgiving could have been really special for them. But I go with the birthday and validate it now as if I knew by saying, he wishes you a happy birthday. (gasps) What else does he say? In other cases, hot reading is used, where producers and interns were known to chat it up with audience members before the show began, finding out bits of personal information that were then passed on to the host. Add in some heavy editing, as well as the true and real desire to hear from a lost loved one from someone in grief, and you can create a really good illusion. Certainly, we have several famous spiritualists still available to watch on TV. The Hollywood medium, the Long Island medium, and the debates rage, just as they did during spiritualism's reign, whether these psychics are the real deal, gifted and sensitive, or selfish hucksters, vampires of grief. 
So what does science and psychology have to say about the dead speaking through us? In terms of the Ouija board, they point to a phenomenon called the idiomotor effect, a psychological phenomenon that has been tested for more than 150 years, with many scientific studies showing that it isn't spirits moving the planchette, it's the subconscious expectations of the participants. Consistently, blindfolded subjects do not spell out messages that make any sense. Confirmation bias, a mental shortcut that we've talked about before, means that our brains are always trying to validate our pre-existing beliefs. When this bias interacts with our subconscious thoughts and feelings, research continues to show that we can actually make tiny, imperceptible bodily movements based on subconscious responses to the questions asked of the Ouija board. It's confusing and creepy, I know. Essentially, when we think we're communicating with spirits, we're likely communicating with a deep, dark part of ourselves. And it's always important to realize that that deep, dark part of us all is shaped in large part by the culture and biases we find ourselves living in. Just like the political movements we experience today, the intersectionality between oppressed groups within the American spiritualist revolution was complicated and problematic. Much of the patchwork philosophy and concepts were cobbled together by affluent white mediums, appropriating many aspects of indigenous and African spirituality. And while it's true that many prominent figures came pontificating through the white mediums to condemn slavery, characters like George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, it's also true that mediums would channel racist caricatures of former slaves, who had apparently come to express forgiveness to their masters, claiming that all is well now that they finally made it to Summerland. Summerland became a kind of progressive consolation, knowing that eventually people who were oppressed would find equality there. It was believed that when reaching this plane, black folks magically turned white, with one medium saying, quote, all distinctions between them and the white spirits cease to exist, they then having become as white, beautiful, refined, and intellectual as these. And while some of the most famous mediums were freed black slaves like activists Sojourner Truth and Rebecca Cox Jackson, they were also angered by these primarily white spiritualist communities and the racism they embodied despite their outward liberal attitudes. And they went on to intentionally create seance circles that centered black women and their voices. But what's all this here talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages lifted over ditches, and to have the best place everywhere. Huh. Nobody ever helps me into carriages, or over mud puddles, or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Spirits known as Indian guides, which were channeled through these same progressive white men and women, were claimed as spiritual ancestors, seen as signs from beyond of forgiveness for genocidal colonial crimes. Even though the more politically active spiritualists did speak out about the terrible injustices that indigenous people had faced, these Indian guides also manifested as clumsy, inaccurate, offensive charades of actual indigenous people. At the time, even spiritualists believed in the popular solution to native issues, indigenous peoples' total assimilation into white Christian culture. As the spiritualist activism became a bigger focus of the movement, some groups started to invite living indigenous Americans to give speeches at their events. 
But when these indigenous speakers expressed demands to keep their own cultures intact and criticized Indian boarding schools and forced assimilation, the white spiritualists actually stopped inviting flesh-and-blood tribal members to their rallies and instead chose to conjure the ghosts of their own Indian spiritual ancestors who just happened to have views much more in line with their own. These guides, as well as the spirits of former slaves, often praised brightly the spiritualists for being empathetic and liberal enough to be honored and trusted with such a spiritual visit, specifically pardoning the progressive mediums that conjured them. To be fair, spiritualism absolutely stood up to the status quo in some badass ways, stuck it to the Christian patriarchy, gave people a chance to experiment with their sexuality while it wailed against the oppression of women, black, and indigenous people, giving the oppressed a new platform to be heard. And although that place beyond that they called Summerland was undoubtedly a place closer to equality, closer to a utopia than the America the spiritualists found themselves living within, many of the messages of true equality were lost in translation. This is because Summerland was not yet a place achieved in the real world. And this eventual consolation of afterlife equality, along with these false noble manifestations, gave affluent spiritualists the feeling of being revolutionaries while they listened to the ghosts of their own social conditioning instead of the living people they claimed to be fighting for. I've been trying to think of this as a welcome reminder to be wary of projecting my own subconscious into activism, to always listen to the voices of the living, and to listen to the voices of lived experience. All of this said and done, I think it's important to recognize that talking to the dead is an emotional topic. That's why the interest has historically flared up during times of national mourning. Even Harry Houdini, the king of the skeptics, who worked for years to bring down the 80-year movement of spiritualism, didn't start out as a cynic. At one time, he wanted to believe. When his beloved mother died in 1913, his heart broke terribly, and he sought out seances as a means to see if she was still out there, somewhere, to see if he could talk to her one last time. There is everything human about this desire, about this hope. I've long since put my Ouija board in the closet, started thinking about ghosts in a different way. Getting older means more and more people disappear, people whose absences ache inside of all of us, people we dream to hear from again. Lately, I've been trying to think, I've been trying to hope that the people we miss, their mannerisms, their senses of humor, their values and habits, and their beloved idiosyncrasies also settle down into the wild tangle of our subconscious. Maybe, in that way, we can channel our loved ones again, feeling their influence still, moving in incremental ways toward being like them, the way our eager fingertips might slide the planchette dreamily, hopefully, nervously, toward the word yes. Next time on the show... We'll explore America's obsessive fear of germs, how we got to know these invisible predators, and how the symbolism of dirt and disease has been used time and time again to quarantine our social others. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, assistant produced by Derek Smith, produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios, with voice acting by Will Rogers, and special thanks to research assistant Riley Smith. 
We're also doing mini episodes every other week. Things from the cutting room floor, the shit they didn't show. I hope you liked our first episode of season two. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review and follow us on social media. And if you are planning to contact the dead, just make sure you're careful because you never know what might come through. Have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.